Jesus said that the church would be leavened, that it would become eventually corrupt. Paul foresaw false teachers inundating the church, and it bothered him. And he wept with the elders of Ephesus as he said, I now commend you unto the Lord, but false prophets will arise even from among your own ranks, and they will come to deceive you. It is amazing that so soon after Jesus walked upon this earth, that such a short period of time after that, the church had already weird ideas about who Jesus was. The Gnostics said he did not have a physical body because God is spirit and everything physical is evil. Thus Jesus was a phantom. They denied the humanity of Christ. A few years after that, people denied the deity of Christ, that he was God. At the same time that this was written, people had ideas as to what they could or could not do as a Christian. And see if this philosophy doesn't sound contemporary. In 68 AD came that teaching called antinomianism that stated, I'm under grace, which means I can live any way that I want to. God doesn't care because His grace covers everything, including my willful disobedience to what He wants. Therefore, I can claim to be a Christian, live any way I please, and God will wink His eye at me. That was going on during this time. It was something that Jude was concerned about. It's something that we ought to be concerned about. The church of Jesus Christ is on the move. That's good news. It's growing. There are great spiritual movements and revivals taking place in many parts of the United States and the world. It's not on a downhill trend, it's on an uphill trend. God's moving. And wherever God moves, the devil moves. There's always a counter movement for any Jesus movement. And eventually things can become stale and out of balance and even eventually corrupted. The church can become weak. There are several examples of this. I had a friend, for example, who went to Bible college so fired up to be in the ministry until he went to Bible college and all they told him at the Bible college is why this book isn't God's word and why he shouldn't believe it and why he shouldn't preach it. He didn't go to Bible college to hear that, but he got it. And he came to me afterwards so defeated, he said, I want to sell all my Christian books. I haven't read my Bible for many months. I don't want to serve the Lord. A Christian school. There's a church in New York City called Judson Memorial Fellowship, named after the great missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson. One time, a strong Bible-believing church. But no more. The pulpit has been removed. Instead, they have flag day ceremonies and they have obscene speakers. In fact, I even read how in that church in New York City, one couple danced through the aisle nude one Sunday morning for service. A depraved, obscene congregational meeting. You know, if this ever happens here, burn the thing, would you? Burn it to the ground. If it becomes so apostate... Uh, it was after Adoniram died and left the place. And, uh, hey, listen, years down, if you ever hear about that, get rid of it. Today, there's an awful lot of talk about prayer in school. That's the big debate. At one time, it was never a debate. Every classroom in this country prayed and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, many institutions were founded for that purpose. We already shared several weeks ago how Harvard University was set up 
to teach ministers of the gospel to go evangelize the eastern seaboard. Another was Princeton. And the man who found Princeton University said these words, Cursed be all learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. Cursed be all learning that is not coincident with the cross of Christ. And cursed be all learning that is not subservient to the cross of Christ. Years before that, Martin Luther, the one who spawned the great reformation under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, when his heart was stirred, not only as a scholar, but as a Christian, to follow the Lord under his grace, said, I am much afraid of the universities that they will prove to be the great gates to hell unless they diligently labor to explain the Holy Scriptures and to engrave them upon the hearts of youth. Every institution where men are not increasingly occupied with the Word of God must eventually become corrupt. In verses 5 through 11... Jude is giving historical examples of apostasy. We read those verses last week and we zeroed in on one of them. Six examples he gives. Three of them are corporate, meaning whole groups that fell away from the Lord. Three of them are individuals. The first one is the nation of Israel. We read that last week. They started out serving the Lord after their deliverance from Egypt, but soon after that they failed to believe the promises of God. They stood at Kadesh Barnea, and when the twelve spies gave their report, two of the reports were good, ten of them were bad. The children of Israel believed the ten who had the bad report card, saying there are giants in the land, we cannot conquer them. And so they failed to enter into the land of promise because they failed to enter into the promise of the land. They didn't believe God. And that entire generation kicked the bucket, literally. In the wilderness, their bodies were strewn all over the desert because they disbelieved God and they came thus under God's judgment. One of the reasons I'm convinced that Jude gives so many examples of those who fall back, apostatize, turn to false teaching, promote false teaching, is a basic truth. It is the tendency of human nature to go astray. That should be marked right off the bat. It is never the tendency of human nature to become enlightened. In fact, you cannot become enlightened apart from God's revelation to you. It's not natural. Spiritual enlightenment does not come naturally, nor does spiritual progression come naturally. The scripture does not say all of us like birds do what is naturally right and flock together and go south for the winter. It says all of us like sheep have gone astray. That's the natural inborn tendency of human beings to go astray. Why? Because, and I hope you believe this by now, every one of us tonight has a sinful nature. We have a natural bent to go astray. A natural tendency to do what is wrong. Every parent by now is convinced of that fact. That sweet little tender innocent child, as beautiful as it is, dressed up in pink or blue or whatever, has the capacity, having an evil nature, to grossly go astray. Man is depraved, in other words. 
You were not born in innocence. You were born in corruption. You were born in depravity. Every human being was. David said, I was conceived in iniquity. In sin, my mother gave birth to me. I came forth from my mother's womb speaking lies. Paul said, you are by nature children of what? Wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, you see. See, this is how we were by nature, but God had to intervene because we're not spiritually enlightened naturally. It takes an interruption from God for us to see any change in our lives at all. Albert Einstein, back in 1948, spoke of human nature when he was asked to give a speech concerning his inventions and what he saw man doing with the inventions. He said, quote, The true problem lies in the hearts and the thoughts of men. It is not a physical but an ethical question. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart. I wish that politicians would keep that in mind when they discuss arms negotiations. It's not the arms that's the issue, it's the human heart. Take away nuclear bombs and we'll use clubs. It's the human nature to go astray. Uh, This may shock you if you've never heard this before, but this is a report from the Minnesota Crime Commission who was asked to give a report on the nature of humans in regards to the rising crime rate. And they said, every single baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny these and he seethes seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is, in fact, dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of infancy, in other words, if a parent does nothing at all to intervene and shape and mold and correct and lovingly discipline, if permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. From the Minnesota Crime Commission. Somebody in that commission had insight into truth. Again, David said, I was born in sin. Parents who realize that will begin young shaping their children, loving their children, recognizing this kid like me has a sinful nature. He's born going astray. So am I. He needs loving, godly attention. Someone to shape the direction. Now, what is true for a baby is true spiritually. Spiritually, we go astray. We follow our own path. We are delinquent concerning our relationship with God. It can happen in the spiritual realm. Case in point, why did Jude have to write this book only 68 years after Jesus walked on planet Earth? Excuse me, 30 years after he walked on planet Earth. Around 33 A.D., 32 A.D., Jesus died. This is 68 A.D. Already, bodies of churches 
were going astray and following false teachers. That corruption is natural. Now we discussed Israel last week. The next verse we want to look at is the next verse, verse 6. He reaches back now further into history, past the time of Israel, not into the human realm anymore, but now tonight into the angelic realm, into some event that occurred long ago. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. What I'd like to do is begin in verse 3, no, verse 4, and read down to verse 7 to get context. Grab the thought. He says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, that is, into our fellowships at that time, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Again, three examples of corporate apostasy, rebelling, turning away from the truth. Israel, angelic beings, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now concerning what we just read in verse 6, the angels who didn't keep their proper domain and so forth, the question arises is when did this happen? What exactly happened and what does the Holy Spirit want us to learn from it? That's what we want to uncover tonight. You know, a recent poll in USA Today, the nation's newspaper, that's what they call it, said that 95% of all Americans believe in at least one supernatural phenomenon. 74% of the 95 believe in angels. Now, I've got to confess, growing up, my parents taught me about guardian angels. And every night I'd say, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And I'd picture these little angels in my room guarding me. When I grew up, past that little childhood stage, uh, growing up in the society that we all grow up in, and uh, looking at things a little more rationally and logically, basically falling away from what my parents told me, I said, that's bunk, angels, wings, flapping around heaven, being on a cloud, playing a harp. But the Bible does speak of angels, indeed guardian angels. And I know that around me there's probably a lot of them. They see me riding my motorcycle and they go, Gabriel, double up on this guy, he's crazy. <laughs> but the Bible says that angels are ministering spirits. Hebrews chapter 1. Ministering spirits sent forth to minister or serve those who are heirs of salvation. That's good news. God looks after you. God's got his angels looking over you. And they're sent to minister to you who are heirs of salvation. There have been many stories that I've read about angelic beings and their influence in human lives. One came again from the mission field, where I think probably you'll see a lot more supernatural than you will in the United States. You want to see God work powerfully? Put your neck on the line in some third world country. 
Apart from computers and fax machines and automobiles, you just have to rest and trust in the Lord completely for your next meal, and you're going to see a lot of supernatural things happen. And uh, there was a couple, a couple years ago, a few, few years ago, by the name of uh, Dr. Patson. He and his wife and family were over in uh, a group of islands that I forget where, but they were at their mission headquarters one night, and a group of native uh, peoples in the jungles where they were ministering were against the preaching of the gospel and surrounded the mission headquarters to burn the headquarters, drive them out to kill the couple. That night, the husband and wife huddled up and prayed all through the night. Next morning, they walked outside their little headquarters and no one was there. A year later, the chief was converted. The chief of the tribe came to know Christ and they had a conversation, the head of the mission headquarters and this converted chief and the chief said, you know, I always wondered, uh, what happened last year? Why did you have all those men surrounding the station? He asked the missionary. He said, what do you mean, all the men? I just had me and my wife inside. We were terrified. We were praying. He said, well, that's not what we saw. We saw rather large men with swords and with spears standing outside. We thought they were going to attack us, so we fled. He said, well, that's news to me. It was just my wife and I. We thought you were going to wring our necks, and so we prayed all night long. And looking back, they attribute that to the intervention of God through his angelic beings. That is biblical, by the way. Remember Elisha was at Dothan and the Assyrians came to attack him. And Gehazi looks out and says, we're sunk. And Elisha goes, oh, give me a break. Lord, open his eyes. And he looks and he sees chariots of fire surrounding the camp of the Assyrians ready to pounce on them. And they did. And so God does have his intervening angels and beings, I believe, in our lives. Um, this verse speaks of angels who did something bad. They didn't keep their proper domain. And because they did something bad, whatever it is they did, God is going to judge them forever. They're shut out of His presence. They are kept in chains, in reserve for some final great day of judgment when the report cards are given in their history. Question, what is Jude referring to? Now let me just briefly give you three views because you can be dogmatic, I suppose, on anything, but there has been three views as to what this is. View number one states that this reference is the only reference in the Bible for this event. In other words, it's self-contained. God gave us only this information and that's all that He wants us to know about this event. It doesn't refer to anything back in history, any scriptural example, any reference. This is it. It's just... The point isn't that we're to know what this means. We're just to be aware that angels blew it sometime and we should be aware that God judged them. In fact, one of these guys by the name of Dr. Lenski says that these angels were dissatisfied and they wanted a still higher domain not belonging to them and so they left their own habitation, which we may say the capital from which they were designed to rule, as not being big enough for them. Beyond this, we have no light on the sin and the fall of the angels. We are not to know about the devils and their sin, but we are to be on guard against them. But I would say that the context of this verse denies that because the verse before it and the verse after it refer to some historical event that he's trying to remind them of. Remember verse 5, I want to remind you. He's trying to bring truths they already know back to the forefront of their minds. If the previous verse 
of the children of Israel who sinned at Kadesh was a historical event that they could turn to, back to Numbers chapter 13, 14. If there's a reference for that, and then the verse after that, Sodom and Gomorrah, is something they could turn back to and see how the people of Sodom and Gomorrah sinned. Why wouldn't the verse in between refer to some historical, biblical, Old Testament example that we could readily refer to? Um, the next view is that this refers to the fall of Lucifer, that great angelic being who became Satan, who in times past rebelled against God, and because he rebelled against God and talked a whole bunch of other angels into it, probably a third of the hosts of heaven, God kicked him out of heaven in the rebellion, and now they are reserved for judgment. Let me give you a few examples of that in the scripture. By the way, I believe that that happened. That at one time, Lucifer rebelled against God and his fate is sealed. There's not a second chance. Lucifer can't say, okay, I repent, I'm going to be born again. He wouldn't want to anyway. But his fate is sealed. He's reserved for judgment. In the book of Isaiah chapter 14, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. But you will be brought down to the grave and to the depths of the pit. Ezekiel shed some light on this fall of Satan when he says, Concerning Satan, your heart has become proud on account of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, and so I threw you to the earth. In Revelation chapter 12, it says he drew a third of the stars or the angelic beings out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, it's true. Satan fell. Satan's going to be judged. In fact, Jesus said the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But there's one problem. It seems that verse 6 is not referring to the fall of Satan and the angelic beings for one simple reason. They are not bound yet. Verse 6, read it carefully. The angels who did not keep their proper domain left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains. That is, they are permanently bound from this point forward or from that point forward under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, that is not true concerning Satan and the demons. How do I know? Well, it's obvious. You get hassled by them. They're still alive and well and kicking. In the book of Job, God said, Satan, where have you been? He said, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. He's not in chains. He's not in everlasting darkness. He's the prince of this world, very active, roaming to and fro throughout the earth. Jesus gave power to the disciples to cast out demons because their activity had mounted to such a pinnacle during that time they were very, very active. Also, it says in the book of Revelation, the dragon, who is Satan, was hurled down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. He lives here. His domain is here. He has the power to corrupt, to deceive, to tempt. He's not bound permanently in everlasting chains awaiting that day. Yet, Jude 6 refers to a group of angels that are bound. And they're kept. They're awaiting. Some dark, cavernous part of the universe, we don't know where, waiting for what God's 
going to do in the future. Which brings us to the third interpretation of this verse. I must say as I give this to you that I don't want to be very dogmatic on it. I think it fits. There's room for differences. So I don't want to be overly dogmatic. But I think we should examine the reasons for it. And I have to also say I don't completely understand it. But it could be that this refers to an event indeed in the Old Testament that we read about back in Genesis chapter 6. If you've been with us Sunday nights, you remember this. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass, or it happened, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. That was cut way back. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The interpretation goes like this. These sons of God was a name referring to angelic beings who left their habitation, and after the fall, they decided to cohabitate with human women, having an offspring of some sort, be it giants or some kind of a creature. In fact, the word giant means fallen one, literally, Nephilim, fallen ones. And that these sons of God were not the godly line of Seth mixing with the evil line and... uh, Uh, having this offspring, but were actually angelic beings, demons that came to the earth in some kind of human form or demon-possessed human or something and had this strange offspring of people that brought more and more wickedness in the earth. You say, that sounds crazy. I admit it sounds strange. However, before Christians ever came along, the Jews always interpreted Genesis chapter 6 to mean that. Always. Throughout Jewish history, since this book was given, the Jews said that's exactly what happened. In fact, Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, referring to this, said, These many angels accompanied with women and begat sons that proved to be unjust. It was the common interpretation that they were fallen angels. Secondly, the version of the Bible at the time of Jude was not English. Yeah, it might come as a surprise to you. But the Christians that Jude wrote to read Greek. They spoke Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, but most of them read Greek. That version of the Bible was not the NIV or the New King James or the New American Standard. It was called the Septuagint version of the Bible, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it translates sons of God in Genesis 6 as the angels of God came and this offspring was produced. Now, the term sons of God, that might throw you, can refer and does refer very often to angelic beings. The book of Job, twice, this is recorded. 
where it says, one day the angels, which is the NIV, the literal translation, which I'm reading from, and more literal in the New King James or King James, and the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan was among them. And then God said, where have you been? He said, oh, I've been running to and fro throughout the earth. Well, if you consider Job my servant, a perfect and just one upright in all the earth. Also, the early church, besides the Jews, besides the version they were reading, the early church up to the 4th century believed that Genesis chapter 6 referred to angelic beings who left their proper domain, came, cohabitated with women and had an offspring. That's how they interpreted Genesis chapter 6. In fact, all of the early church fathers make reference to Jude and make reference to Genesis 6 as being fulfilled. A parallel account I'd like you to turn to now is uh, the book of 2 Peter. So turn in your New Testaments to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read together. 2 Peter chapter 2 sounds a lot like Jude. Let's see, 2 Peter, is that New Testament? Yeah, there it is. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Let's back up. Verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way the truth will be blasphemed by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words, For a long time their judgment has not been idle, their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, being in the flood, on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now you see that word back in the verse 4? He delivered them into chains of darkness, excuse me, cast them into hell. The word hell, it's the only time it's used, is the word Tartarus. It's not Sheol, it's not Hades, it's Tartarus. It's an interesting word. It was referred to by the Greeks as the place where the most wicked demonic beings would be kept and bound. Permanently. A place that was determined beforehand by God for the ultimate judgment that would come in the future. Now, What he's referring to is not Satan's fall from heaven and the fall of the demons because, again, they are not bound. They're loose. They're busy. And by folks, I don't care how long and hard you say, I bind the devil, I bind the devil. He's still out there. He's still working. There is a predetermined time when God will deal with Satan But if you think after you say, I bind him, that he's bound, then who's doing his business? Somebody's still busy doing his business. He's still very active. He's still working around the clock and around the globe. 
Now, whether Genesis 6 refers to a demon-possessed group of people who have these offspring, or it refers to demons who could somehow transform themselves into manifested humans, I don't know. We know that the enemy demons can manifest themselves as angels of light. We don't exactly know, but that seems to be the interpretation. Question is, what does that mean for me today? What lessons am I to learn? Simply this. Here's Jude's point and Peter's point. Angelic beings are a higher order of beings than you and I. Did you know that? God made us, humans, a little lower than the angels. Humans are lower than the angels. Well, if God took this high created being and judged them, don't think that lower created beings who bring in destructive heresies in the church are going to get off the hook easy. That's his point. Back in Jude, look with me at verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and Jesus Christ. God has not changed his minds about the angels who left their domain, their habitation. He hasn't changed his mind regarding their future judgment. It hasn't happened yet, but it is sure, it is secure. One day those chains will be bound and they will be dealt with in severe judgment. And those who bring in destructive heresies, who turn God's church from truth to error, will be dealt with in severe judgment. That's the promise here. I remember reading a book that was a part of a trilogy called The Singer, The Song, and The Finale. Actually, a great set of books, storyline about the singer Jesus Christ who came to the earth and gave his song, salvation, calling people to himself. And at one point, a question was asked by one of these people, God, gracious God, how could a gracious, loving God take and lock me up and send me to hell forever and ever? And God's response was, I never would send you there, but if you choose to go there, I could not keep you out. Those who bring in destructive heresies, spoken of by Paul and by Jesus, denounced by Jude and Peter, is a sure judgment that's coming upon the earth. The second lesson, and perhaps the most important for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, is simply this. And that is, we should be lovers of the truth. We should be lovers of the truth. The truth to God is important. Don't think God is an existentialist. Don't think God is sitting up in heaven and saying, it doesn't matter what you believe, really, as long as you're sincere. God is not a relativist. God places a high premium on the truth. Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus said at one time, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Doesn't sound like God's given a whole lot of leeway, does it? Doesn't sound like God's saying, there are many roads to me. Jesus is the truth. God is concerned about what you believe. Doctrine is important. Sound doctrine... Listen, doctrine determines behavior. What you believe determines how you behave. If you believe wrongly about God, you will act wrongly concerning God and other people. Not that we need to become Theodore Theologian, quoting huge theological texts and words to people, but we need to know the truth. Jesus prayed to the Father... Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We should love it. We should know it. 
we should be uncompromising with it in regards to who Jesus is and the grace of God. It does matter what you believe. You know what? The solution to all of this nonsense about new ideas, new heresies, different teachings, different cults is simple. A humble submission to this book. A humble submission to the Word of God. Believing that this book contains all that I need for life and godliness. That if I want to grow, I should give myself to it. If I want direction, I should give myself to it. I should learn its precepts. They should become a part of my life, my decision-making process. Lord, I humble myself under the dictates of this book, your word, your truth. That's the solution. Did you know that every great man, every great man and woman of God throughout church history who stayed on target with the Lord, stayed on target with this book and loved this book with all their hearts and gave themselves to it? That's why they stayed on target. David said, Your word I've hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Martin Luther again said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs to me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. Dr. R.A. Torrey, the early part of this century, great Christian writer and speaker, said 99% out of, excuse me, 99 out of 100 Christians are merely playing at Bible study. And therefore, 99 out of 100 are merely weaklings when they might be spiritual giants. In the early 1900s, there was a fellow by the name of Horatio Bonar. I've shared some of his stuff with you before, but he said, we must study the Bible more. We must not only lay it up within us, but transfuse it through the whole texture of our soul. Let me read that again. We must study the Bible more. We must lay hold of it and not only lay it up within us, but transfuse it through the texture of our soul. Now, there's a man who said some not only good words, but he lived it. Because not long after he said that, his wife and his children died in a boating accident, actually on a large cruise. The ship went down. His wife and children went down with the boat. His three children were killed. His wife remained alive and wired him back in Chicago and said, all the kids are dead. I remain alone. That night he paced his room and he wrote this song. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. Can you imagine that? Writing a hymn like that when your family's been killed and your wife is the only one left. But you said the word of God must be transfused through our lives. How could you live a life like that unless you really believed in the authority of this book? And if you do and you live by it and you love it, you don't have to worry about all the other false teachers and false heresies that come in and all the destruction. You know, it's like a bank teller. The way they train bank tellers to discover fake $20 bills is have them study a real one. You study a real one long enough, you'll be able to tell a fake really easily. So study the real thing. Be acquainted with it. Submit yourself to the truth. It'll set you free. And you'll know when somebody feeds you some doctrinal line to say, it's not it. And you're in trouble if you continue to believe that way. Father, we thank you that you've given us the truth. We're called to love it. Because we love you. I know, Lord, that the most important thing is in whom we believe rather than what we believe. But nonetheless, what we believe determines how we act, how we behave. Lord, I pray that in a very humble manner we might approach you on a daily basis, seeking out who you are throughout the words that are given to us in this book. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. 
We thank you for its truths, the growth and the joy that it brings when we meditate on it and give ourselves to it. And Father, I pray for this church, all of us, that we would become bright and shining lights in this city and in this country. Wherever you send us, Lord, it would be an unmistakable beacon of brightness and the life of Jesus Christ. We live in, in, in horrible days, as Paul was just singing, that cloud of oppression that is on our world. But Lord, we have the eye of the storm. We live in a relationship, a living relationship with the living God. And I pray, Lord, that that relationship would take precedence over every single relationship, every single love, every single thing that we own, anything in our lives. That out of a wholehearted commitment to you, we'd know the truth. The truth would set us free. In Jesus' name.